Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll celebrate the Concord Coalition's 30th anniversary, which happened this week, by asking our co-chairs, former Senators Bob Kerry and Jack Danforth, what they think are the big fiscal and economic challenges over the next 30 years. And then I'll talk to the original New Hampshire state director of the Concord Coalition, Rich Ashew, a senior fellow at the University of New Hampshire's Carsey School of Public Policy and vice president of global management affairs for Lamb Research Corporation. Our first guests are former Senators Bob Kerry and Jack Danforth. Uh, Kerry is a Medal of Honor recipient, former governor of Nebraska and senator from Nebraska. He's currently managing director at Allen Company, a investment banking firm in New York. And Jack Danforth is an ordained Episcopalian priest. He served as Missouri's attorney general before being elected to the United States Senate, where he served three terms until 1995. Senator Danforth is currently a partner at Dowd Bennett in St. Louis. In 1994, Senators Kerry and Danforth were appointed by President Bill Clinton to co-chair the Bipartisan Commission on Entitlement and Tax Reform, uh, appropriately known as the Kerry-Danforth Commission. 20 years later, they reunited as co-chairs of the Concord Coalition, and uh, they still are, and we Welcome them on to the show uh, in that capacity. We're looking at our 30th anniversary here. And, uh, you know, what I wanted to do is take a look at uh, forward-looking issues. In other words, if we were starting the Concord Coalition today, we'd obviously still be concerned about deficits and debt, uh, which are, you know, the debt has certainly escalated dramatically in the, in the past 30 years. But, um, you know, what are the what are the key challenges that uh, that people are going to have to face in, in the in the over the next 30 years? Um, Bob, let me start with you. We're heading to serious financial problems. I mean, you can only postpone this thing for so long. And it was bad in the 1990s, although we pretty much had the budget balanced by the end of the decade. Uh, we just went right back in the tank and started borrowing money to pay the bills. And it's easy to do, especially after the crisis of 2008, uh, when the Federal Reserve basically took interest rates to zero and you got free money. You can borrow money for nothing. That wasn't enough. So they started buying up assets. And, you know, they now have $8 trillion worth of assets on their balance sheet. Um, so the Federal Reserve is in a position right now where they're finally going to try to do something about inflation. Um, and it's going to, there's no, no other way to get to solve the problem other than raise interest rates. And that's going to make the deficit worse. And it's going to uh, probably have a negative impact on revenues coming in because we're, the economy's got to slow. Um, you already seen it slow in housing. So it's a, it, but it all gets back to the same thing, Bob, which is, are we, are, are elected people willing to tell the audience the truth? 
Um, are they willing to say to the audience, you know, honestly, um, that we've got to slow down the growth of these entitlement programs and they go to, you know, people over the age of 65 or 67 or 70, whenever they start taking it, uh, and they vote. So right now, you've got a very large consensus for all the talk about, you know, polarization and Republican and Democrats not getting along anymore. They're all unanimously in favor of doing nothing uh, about Social Security and Medicare. They, they, you know, they're, they're, they're on board with the do nothing plan um, and they help each other by going out there and staying silent when, when asked about the problem. Jack, you want to weigh in on? Uh, yeah, our... I mean, it's, uh, what strikes me about this whole issue is that it's so old. We had our commission in 1994. At that time, there were 30 some odd members of the commission. My memory is all but one member of the commission signed on to a report which had beautiful four-color graphs showing that we're headed toward a very bad future, not just for the budget, but for Social Security and Medicare. While everybody but I think one person agreed with the problem, we couldn't get more than a half a dozen to agree to do anything. And it's the same today. And as a political issue... For me, at least, um, it goes back 40 years. The first time that I noticed this as a political issue was 1982, when I was running for re-election to the Senate. And the big issue that was used against me, because I had suggested that we better do something about the indexing formula, the big issue that was used against me is Danforth will cut Social Security. It was used against me again in 1988, which was the last time I ran. It's still being used on television commercials. The Democrats accuse the Republicans of cutting or privatizing Social Security. And it's very lucrative, I guess, politically to do that. And then the Republicans are so afraid that it will be used that they do nothing. So the result is that decade after decade, absolutely nothing happens. And it's become a bipartisan, as Bob said, it really is a bipartisan agreement to do nothing. Uh, I used to think that my party, the Republican Party, was supposed to be the party of fiscal responsibility. But in the four years of President Trump's presidency, the national debt increased 39% in four years during a Republican presidency. So nothing gets done. And then the urgency keeps getting closer and closer. The urgency of, re of insolvency for health insurance, insolvency for the Social Security Trust Fund, gets closer and closer, and still nothing is done. And to Bob's question about, okay, how about future challenges? Well, um, we, we, can, we can predict some of them. We can predict that anything we do on, on the climate change is going to cost a pile of money. 
we can predict that anything more that we do on infrastructure spending will cost a pile of money. We can predict that national defense, especially given the, uh, the, the great dangers that we're now in, is going to cost a pile of money. But the flexibility to find this money has vanished, other than just borrowing, 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 borrowing. So there's no flexibility in policymaking. And the name of the game is manana. You know, just don't worry about it. Let somebody else worry about it. Get me through the next election. So I, I hate to sound so grim, but we've been <laughs> at this thing for so long. And I think yeah. the value of the value of the Concord Coalition is both to be a, a resource for a lot of very important information, but also to insist on keeping this difficult question as visible as it can possibly be. You know, I want to uh, pass the microphone over to Tori here for a second, but you know, you, when you say we've been at this for so long and the problem is so old, it really it is reflected in the demographics of the country. I mean, the, the <clears throat> we have people that I know that I hired, uh, the, you know, recently that were not born uh, when the conquer, when, uh, you know, that were, um, whether they're well, like 30 years old now, and we talk about, uh, you know, the Concord Coalition is older than they are. But it, well, Bob, Bob, it's always been a demographic problem. Yeah. It was a demographic problem in 94. And it's a demographic problem now. And, and the, I promise you, there, if you decide to run for office, you're never going to get an applause line talking about demographic. If you tell people, well, you know, we've got a problem because uh, the national debt is now such and such, and it's going to be whatever it's going to be 185 percent of gross national product or whatever in some future year and people will say you know that you're right we've got to do something about it we let's we're going to cut waste and <laughs> i remember no waste, I, waste no, from, i can waste remember it. i don't know whether it was before or after you came to the senate bob but I remember one of our colleagues, I will not embarrass this person by mentioning his or her name. <laughs> it was a his. But he actually, during the budget resolution on the floor of the Senate, went to the Senate and, and said, I have an amendment. I want to vote on the amendment. And we're going to cut X number of dollars from the budget by cutting waste, fraud, and corruption. And that, <laughs> and that, was, the, that was the program. Well, that... <laughs> the problem is for the entitlement programs, they're just check-writing pro pro programs. The, the, I mean, just write way... a check for Social Security. They're... Now, the hospitals, I'm sure they can be more efficient, but for Social Security, where is the inefficiency? You know, maybe instead of using a a ten dollar ballpoint pen. You can use a seven dollar ballpoint pen. It, it's it's just it, it is so phony, but people want to believe. They're, what they really want to believe is that they can get more benefits on less taxes. Right, and that that is the political applause line. Yeah. I, I believe talk it's about a social security that is not. <laughs> 
politically afoot. That's blues. <laughs> That's tars and feathers. <laughs> well, I think it's it's accurate, Bob. In fact, you know, Jack, you listed the things that that Congress has to vote on every year to appropriate it, whether it's climate, defense, children, doesn't really matter, infrastructure of any kind. You got to cast a vote for it. Without a single vote, uh, the the COLA in January and Social Security will increase annual spending by $100 billion. Nobody's voting on it. Uh, all in favor say, oh, no, not on that one. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> give me waste, fraud, and abuse. Bring that back. <laughs> so the, only, the only people griping about it, Bob, are, are us conjurers who are no longer <laughs> in, in office. But That's true. we're just in our rocking chairs grousing about it. But it really does deserve attention because this is, and Bob Bixby is, is the economist. I'm not. But I have always believed, I guess as a matter of faith, that a high national debt is injurious to the country. It hurts the country, particularly hurts our children and grandchildren. Um, I believe that, but uh, where is anything coming of this? Well, we did do an issue brief, as a matter of fact, uh, just recently uh, with our chief economist, Steve Robinson, that. Uh, did show that the national debt does have a uh, uh, bad effect, and particularly it, it shifts the burden to the future. We we have always said that, as you said, uh, uh, and believed in it. And Steve went back just to go through all the numbers and do some modeling, and came up with that answer. So we're we're pretty sure that uh, debt does have an impact, and it has a worse impact on future generations. Well, um, I mean, I I. I He's not an economist. He's a, one of the leading investors in the United States and, and, and liberal to boot. And his guy, he used to go around all over the country giving speeches about entitlements. They gave up on it. Uh, but he said, you know, when interest rates normalize and we're heading to normalize interest, um, the story in the Times this morning said, oh, God, interest rates now are 6%. That's not high. Um, you know, I, was in, I started in business when I got out of the service in the early 1970s. Um, you know, by the time Volcker got inflation under control, the interest rates were over 20. So if, if you normalize interest rates, this guy was telling me, in 15 or 20 years, the interest on the national debt will consume more than 20% of GDP, which is all spending today. So the problem is young people are going to have to pay that off. We, we are literally robbing from the future to pay for the past. That's what it amounts to. Um, and you, you, you can't tell the, the audience that you care about your children, your grandchildren. That, it should be a law making that illegal to make that <laughs> statement until you do something about this problem. Because all your behavior is basically loading up this debt upon young Americans. If you're under the age of 50 and you look at these numbers, you've got to say, oh, my God, how, how do we get out of this? Uh, these guys are making, making my life miserable when I retire. So, Curry, you want to jump in? I was going to say that was a really nice segue. You were talking about uh, interest rates and inflation. And obviously, one of the biggest changes in the economy this year is the end of, of free money. Uh, for the last decade, uh, historically low interest rates have helped the government. Decade. It's been since 
2008. <laughs> That's 14 years. Right. So a decade and a half has helped the federal <laughs> government amass, you know, big debt with little cost. But now, as you say, as you point out, interest rates are rising fast in response to inflation. So my question is, is do you... The, the, the interest rates are not, they are rising fast. They're normalizing. Right. They're going back to normal rates. So, but do you, uh, but do you think that that Re- return to normal, return reversion to trend. Will that finally refocus Congress on our nation's debt and deficits? Do you think that the policymakers will respond to today's higher interest rates by rethinking what they're doing in Congress? I no, I, no, I don't, not at yeah, all. I'm, I'm with Jack. There. Oh. We got bi- we got bipartisan <laughs> agreements. <is that>? Yeah. <laughs> no, they're they're single minded for. I mean, for I can't say for every member of Congress, but for the majority, the single-minded focus on each one of them is winning the next election. That's it. Doesn't have to do with our children or our grandchildren or some governmental problem, even one that's, say, three years away. What's going to affect my election? And the way to get popular is spend money. You know, I thought when Biden announced the college debt forgiveness, $10,000 in an election year, well, that's, that's how to become popular. Now, he could have become twice as popular by making it 20000 or he could make it 10 times more popular, whatever. It, it is... And the interesting thing about a lot of the spending, that that the way politicians like to talk about it to make it seem good and wise is to call it investment. To the typical politician, throwing money out of an airplane would be called an investment. <laughs> so it's, it's no, I, I wish I could be optimistic that something would induce a political response. But the only thing that could possibly induce a political response is to force the issue. And I mean in campaign after campaign, for the media to be hounding candidates, for organizations such as ours to be raising the visibility of the issue so that candidates couldn't just dance around it anymore. Yeah, like I think it, it increases the importance of the Concord Coalition. You can look in Congress and you can see a Joe Manchin, or you can, you can, people that are actually trying to do something about the debt. The, the number of members of Congress, the 535 members of Congress who care about this issue is, and actually do something about it, support legislation that would, that would help solve the problem, that number isn't zero. Out of 535, I'm not sure it's 10%, um, but, uh, you know, praise the people who care about it and are actually doing something about it. Uh, And that's basically what Concord's trying to do. When Paul Songus was running for president in 92, I mean, he was, uh, Jack, he he had a great message. And you served with him, so you probably knew him better than, than, than I did. I just got to know him during that campaign. But he was, it was economic patriotism. That was his message. Uh, and it's what we need. Uh, yep. We don't need to run around. Thank you for your service. I get that all the time. So thank me for my service. It's a little late for that. I mean, you can, uh, 
I'll thank you if you can get engaged with that. You don't have to go into combat today uh, to do something good for your country. Uh, and so what we what we do need are economic patriots who understand, uh, you know, that freedom isn't free. It doesn't you got you got to actually do something uh, to have the next generation say, you know, thank goodness for the Concord Coalition. I think we are. You're listening to Facing the Future on WKXL. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, where Tori Gorman and I are talking with our co-chairs, former Senators Bob Kerry and Jack Danforth. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and Tori Gorman and I are talking to the Concord Coalition co-chairs, former Senators Bob Kerry and Jack Danforth. Basically, we were talking about changes in communication since we started well, I mean, uh, years it, ago. Right. So I, I, what I said was, when I'm trying to let my kids know how old I am, I would say to them, I was born before Google, as if, you know, that was like <laughs> hundreds of years ago. Uh, what these search engines give uh, is every citizen uh, what they need to find out what's going on. You can't any longer say, oh, I didn't know about it. I didn't go to the Library of Congress and dig out all these files, which is what we had to do in the past. You can Google all this. So you can duck, duck, go all this. So whatever we want to do uh, to get this information, it takes you an hour or so, and you'll come face to face with this. Mathematically, it's not difficult to solve. It is a demographic problem. Um, we're going to have to, but, but we have to acquire the, the patriotism to do it. You can't just get what you want right now and, and to heck with everybody else. So it's gotten harder though. I mean, now, uh, in addition to Google, I've got social media. I got, you know, the iPhone came out in 2007. You see people, well, what do you think we ought to do? Senator whiplash and the cameras going in their face and they're afraid <laughs> to, they're afraid to say yes or no. Um, so it's, it's, it has gotten harder. And if you want to, if you want to be an influencer today, and Jack, nothing makes me feel like a geezer more than that, that there are, there are human beings that their ambition in life is to be an influencer, meaning, meaning they've got 100,000 people following them on TikTok or following them on Facebook or following them on you know, some other social media account. Um, and they're not talking about this. Um, so you know, they're, 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 getting, they're getting likes by either saying something funny, something stupid, or something insulting. Uh, so it's, it has gotten harder. I think the hope is that there are practical consequences for real programs that affect real people that are heading our way in the near future. I think most people, when you talk about national debt or when you talk about deficits, it's, it's, it's an abstraction. But when you talk about programs that are in some jeopardy that affect them, then you get their attention. So the trust funds for Social Security and Medicare at a date certain, namely for hospital insurance 2028, for Social Security 2035, the trust funds will be insolvent. Any payout will be just from taxes that are current, not from the trust fund, meaning that for Social Security, benefits would have to be reduced. Social Security, if they're getting, for every dollar now, they'll get, they'll get 80 cents in Social Security benefits. The hospitals will get 90 cents for every dollar that they charge. So this has real consequences 
to people's living when you say your Social Security will be cut by 20%, then it creates pressure on people in Congress to do something. And whatever is done is going to be unpopular. It's going to either affect benefits or it's going to increase tax revenues, but we have to get on it. It's urgent or something bad is going to happen to you. And then there should be, I think, in Congress, a bipartisan caucus, a group of six, eight, 10, 12, whatever, equally divided Republicans and Democrats who are there to fix this problem. They're not there to raise taxes. They're not there to cut benefits. I think that is the hope on the entitlement side for doing anything. It's not going to affect discretionary spending, but discretionary spending is an increasingly small fraction of total federal spending. To approach it from the standpoint of benefits that are very important, particularly to older people, and that they're going to be cut, and we've got to fix the problem, to me, that offers some hope. I like the idea of a dedicated caucus. Easier to do it in the Senate than in the House, but I like the idea uh, a lot, because I think it's a, it's a, it's positive, it's a solution, and I happen to think it'll work. Because, uh, you, as you know, you can get your own caucus will penalize you if you get too provocative on this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said it earlier, Jack, that people care, you know, they're, they're watching polling numbers about, about for re-election. I mean, the, I'm, I'm probably have tortured you all with this old joke, but the, the, joke, the joke I uh, see relevant to this is that there are two kinds of people in Washington, people who can count and people who lose. And the problem is they're, they're counting polling data for themselves. They're not, they're not counting uh, this terrible problem. If you're 50 years old or younger, uh, the do-nothing plan, which is supported, I believe, by almost every member of Congress, is, is going to cut your benefits by 20%. Um, that it's just, that's what the do nothing plan does. Um, and, and, uh, and, or raise the taxes, uh, on your kids and your grandkids who are still in the workforce. So it's a, it's the problem is that they, I think they've been members of Congress have been able to avoid answering the question. Um, what if you don't do anything, which is what you're proposing. And they'll yammer on about, you know, making it sound like they're actually know what they're talking about when they're not, all they're trying to do is run out the clock. There are some folks that have come together on certain issues. uh, And, you know, Senators Romney and Manchin have proposed the Trust Act, which would go after (coughs) solutions to some of the big trust funds. So, like you said, the the number is not zero of the uh, people that are interested in the issue. Tori? I wanted to ask a question about procedure in the Senate. I mean, we're all here. We're all children of the Senate, students of the Senate. And of course, the both of you served in the Senate. Um, And I'm real curious about the Senate's filibuster rule. As we think about, you know, policy solutions to some of these big problems, if if and when we actually get to that point, we're going to need to pass legislation. And, And right now, policymaking is perceived to be a zero sum game. If you're winning, that means I must be losing which makes compromise very, very difficult in Congress. We were just talking about that. So the Senate has already jettisoned the filibuster for nominations. And I'm wondering whether the legislative filibuster is going to survive this very contentious period uh, of of, of partisanship and policy uh, on Capitol Hill, or will they have to ditch the legislative filibuster in order to solve some of these big problems that we know are looming? 
Well, personally, I think the filibuster has made it looks looks worse uh, now because it's being used to avoid even a motion to proceed. You got to mm-hmm. you got to get 60 votes uh, as opposed to a 60 vote requirement on on some specific piece of legislation. So I I, I don't know. I, I, I the whole idea of the Senate is to is to make the effort to protect the minority. Uh, and, you know, it, what goes around comes around. And a lot of Democratic friends who want to get rid of the filibuster. I said, beware of mm-hmm. simple solutions. Um, I'm not I'm not sure it's a, it, it'll make things better. I think if they change the procedures and said you can't have a filibuster on a motion to proceed, uh, I'd feel better about it. But it still gets back to the same problem. I don't think the filibuster is the reason uh, that. We don't have bipartisan proposals that will actually fi- fix Social Security or Medicare. Yeah, I think it's pretty tough to get away from the filibuster because right now you've got 50-50 split in the Senate plus the vice president passing major legislation, high-cost edu- uh, legislation. I think that's pretty tough to get away from the filibuster on that. But. Mm-hmm. So you think saner heads will prevail and, and the filibuster will remain? I do believe it will remain, but I think that if you first create the sense of what's going to happen if we do, so Bob says the Do Nothing Caucus prevails, what's the practical effect? Okay, we can drift along, what, then what's going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. And you better start planning now that you're going to get 80% on the dollar in Social Security, not, not a dollar on a dollar. And then... Then, if you want to create that urgency, then put together a group of people. It used to be called the Finance Committee, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be nice. <laughs> start, start getting them to meet once. So, one of the most dangerous things about democracy, yeah, and we don't have a democracy. We're, we're set up as a republican form of government, but still. Uh, it applies, which is uninformed public opinion. It can be really ugly. Uh, we've all seen it before. And part of my problem with the end of the filibuster, is it feels like it's being it's like it, it's being pushed on us by a mob, not necessarily but pushed on us by people who are thoughtfully trying to figure out what to do, whether it's what Jack is proposing or top of the list for me. I'd get rid of those four fundraising committees. Yeah, we now have a Republican committee and a Democratic committee in the Senate and in the House. And not only do they raise money, but the power has shifted away from the committees to the leadership office, uh, whether it's whether it's a Democrat or a Republican. And that's a relatively recent phenomenon. But it's a it's a it's a problem, because if 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 you're trying to work with a with a Republican colleague as a Democrat or vice versa uh, and this committee is out spending money attacking you on with ads, uh, based upon your your collaboration with somebody in the other party in a primary, uh, it, it to say to put it mildly, it discourages the kind of bipartisan effort we need in this space. So I mm-hmm. uh, to get rid of those four committees, in my view, uh, would be a lot more positive than. But you're now you're back to the need for backsheesh that you know, to I, run I, your campaign. I have to say <laughs> I've been full witness to that. I used to work for Congressman uh, Colby from Arizona. He partnered with Charlie Stenholm, a Democrat from Abilene, Texas, on Social Security reform. And Charlie was getting beaten up over Social Security. So my boss, Jim Colby, went to his rescue and wrote a letter to one of the Abilene papers saying this is a good man and and you shouldn't, you know, 
He shouldn't beat him to death over social security because he's doing the right thing. And next thing you know, my boss, Jim Colby, got called into the leadership office with the House Republican, you know, financing fundraising committee and said, do you understand which team you're on? (laughs) So you're absolutely right. So keep keep the flag flying, Bob. It's going to be. That's right. Well, we will. Uh, We're going to have to we're going to have to leave it there at this point. Uh, But we really appreciate uh, Bob Kerry and Jack Danforth for Thank you for your service, and <laughs> and uh, but but we will keep at it. Tori, thank you for joining in today, and uh, we'll be right back with the next segment of Facing the Future. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and uh, my guest for this segment is Rich Ashew, who helped get the Concord Coalition off the ground 30 years ago, uh, following several years as uh, a professional staff member on the U.S. Senate Committee on Governmental Affairs. Um, Today, he's a senior fellow at the University of New Hampshire's Carsey School of Public Policy and vice president of global government affairs at LAM Research. Uh, Prior to this, he served as U.S. Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Export Administration. Uh, Rich is a graduate of the University of New Hampshire, and welcome to Facing the Future. Thanks for having me, and congratulations on, on a big 30 years. I, yeah, well, thanks. You know, uh, people say that. And, and what I'm reminded of is one time Paul Songus was asked, uh, what is the mission of the Concord Coalition? And he said, the mission is to put ourselves out of business. Right. So by that measure, I guess we have failed. Right. <laughs> uh, almost. I mean, we had four years of surpluses for a while there. So things things were looking good. It hasn't been all downhill. But anyway, um, Let's, uh, you know, I want to talk about some current affairs, but uh, I thought I'd just uh, start by going back to the early days of the Concord Coalition. You you got involved uh, very early on through your work with Warren Rudman, I take it. Right, right. Yeah, it's, I, I was a, I was a, indeed a professional staff member, but but Warren Rudman was, was my boss and you didn't work for for Rudman uh, and, and not not having your DNA that budget discipline uh, that really then and, and today, uh, you know, to me is foundational to anything you want to do as a, as a society. If you don't have you know, those, those good solid fundamentals, uh, it's very hard to make, to make the promises. Uh, you know, there were different promises then than there are today, but you still, if you want those promises to come true, you've got to do some things right. And, and, and Rumman and Songus, they, they took the debate out to the people. And uh, and I was proud to be a part of it. When did uh, when, when did you first hear about the Concord Coalition from Rudman? So it was in the uh, in the days leading up to his departure uh, from the Senate, and and he served two terms, could have easily won re-election to a third. And so at that time, the idea of a politician walking away from a safe re-election was a little startling, uh, and certainly a little bit about out of step with many of his colleagues. And, and the idea that you don't need to be elected to something to carry on the battle was very, very compelling. And, and the Concord Coalition was, was the vessel uh, by which he did it. So it was right at that tail end uh, of, of his service and it rolled right, right in. Because when, when his service ended, my service ended. And I yeah. rolled into the private sector and, and became a, a state leader for the Concord Coalition in Hampshire. 
what he and, and Paul Songus were doing and the way they were doing was so important, which is to communicate to real people about uh, the perils of, uh, of of the lack of budget discipline. And and yeah, as you pointed out, it did it did work, but it's hard to sustain something, you know, in the face of of just overriding dynamics about consumption that that we still live with today. It is uh, there there are really powerful forces aligned against fiscal responsibility. It's a, it's a Correct. it's a tough thing to do. I've always, I've often made dieting analogies that you know yeah. you can go on the straight and narrow and go to the gym and give up uh, whatever you want to give up donuts or something for a while. But it's, it's, it's really hard to maintain if, you know, in the face of, of temptations, but, you know, you mentioned fiscal responsibility being foundational. And I mean, you say that from the background of a businessman who's, uh, you know, been in the private sector is, is it, uh, I mean, do you think the, business community appreciates quite what the importance is of the uh, issue overall? Um, I, 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 I think less so. I think less so now we're, we're, than, than we're, before. We're, yeah. I, uh, because um, the, you know, businesses really needed things in order to be successful. They needed, um, they needed low interest rates. They, they needed, um, you know, st- stable governments. They they needed political stability. They needed um, uh, low low you know inflation things like that. And you know, and and those were all the arguments that we brought to the business community, and 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 they were responsive. Now, I, I really feel like there are there are you know the, the thing about businesses is that they they will succeed. The good ones will succeed no matter what the challenge is, whether it's a market challenge or that, you know, again, lack of stability and they find ways to succeed. And unfortunately that can reward sitting on the sidelines for uh, really important, again, I might view societal issues that, that oftentimes the cost comes late. Hmm. It doesn't come in the quarterly way businesses measure themselves. It, could, it can come later and, and, and often does. And uh, and I think that the, the need to heighten the awareness of that, uh, that has never gone away. And, and businesses do need to be brought into the fold because um, uh, we can't we, we given how much they have supplanted uh, government in terms of things like R&D. Um, we have a lion's share of R&D in this country is spent by the private sector, not by the U.S. government. And and. Uh, you know, that's a that's a huge responsibility. We, we need the business community to be part of the solution. I mean, the overall fiscal environment needs to be sound or, you know, it's, it's tough to run a sound business in, a, in an economy that's suffering from various imbalances. And, you know, we're seeing that now. I mean, um, the, the short term thing, I remember Rudman making the point often that if you you know, if you wait until you're feeling the effects, you've waited too late. I mean, once yep. the crisis is upon you, yep. uh, you've you've missed your opportunity to do uh, reasonable things. You know, we talked about the business community. Another part of this that's important are young people, um, you know, the people that are in you, you've been associated with several uh, institutions of higher learning yep. uh, over the time. And what is it that you try to get across uh, to younger people to try to get them involved or 
appreciate the issues. Yeah. So actually, you know, the premise of that question is is basically that they're they're not and they should be. Where I I, I just have to share, and this is an anecdotal, obviously, but in my experience, it's it's more the other way around. We need to be listening to them. You know, the people who are kind of, you know, who have like you and I who have these notches in our belt and battle scars and, and, and <laughs> war weary. We yeah, it's not like we we have to go recruit them. They're I look. A lot of them are carrying this enormous debt uh, that that not, you know they've been they have been awakened far earlier this generation to the perils of debt and interest and etc. Than many of us ever had. So we we should we should not assume off the bat that they don't they don't quote unquote get it. I do think the challenge is how do we how do we spin that into activity. That can that can help the body politic because because ultimately, you know, look the people say politicians do right they'll they'll be responsive uh, to those dynamics if we can get them get them going and I think I think that's the that is the deal with 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 the younger set um, you know the post college uh, age they'll they'll they just need a they just need uh, to know that they can have the confidence that their vote uh, well vote later opinion uh, matters. I just wanted to get your quick take on a couple of uh, issues in Washington. Uh, Congress just passed a, uh, a bill to increase funding for chip manufacturing and, and other things to try to stimulate the industry. Uh, I presume you're in favor. Well, I'm, I'm definitely I'm definitely in favor of of the U.S. government acknowledging and doing what the government should do within government limits of being part of a very, very important. Uh, industry uh, that you know the analogy I use is semiconductors uh, are the equivalent of oil in the 70s, uh, which is this commodity that is uh, only really available in select geographies in the world, uh, and that has enormous national security consequences. I mean, it's all those things happening at once, and how can the government not be involved? But I think the government needs to be careful. Um, the the Chips Act, gratefully. Uh, is focused on one kind of one very particular area that I think that I think the government should be focused on, which is driving advanced R and D. Um, you know, the, it's up to the government, I think, to spend the money on on R and D spending that may not carry an immediate or even short term benefit, because that's where that's where industry spends their money, and 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 they make a lot of it, and they can spend it. So. I think the CHIPS Act does include some of that, but I'll tell you something. Uh, this is new territory for the U.S. government, and whether it works or not, we'll have a lot to do with the implementation. Yeah, that uh, that was kind of my take too. So we'll, uh, keep our fingers crossed. On yeah. um, and then one other question: uh, You know, when we got to a balanced budget uh, in the late 1990s, a lot of that, and I think this is underappreciated, came from the drawdown in defense spending following the Cold War. Uh, it doesn't look like that's going to happen again. I mean, things yeah. are kind of ramping up in Europe and we're uh, increasing our expenditures there. Nobody knows where that's going to go. Um, what's your take on the future of, of defense spending and what's what's our posture vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Europe right now? That, yeah, well, we, you know, we've learned some we've learned some tough lessons, uh, you know, with with you know Russia's aggression in, in Ukraine, which is sometimes what's old is new again. 
Um, but it, it's still a reminder that when it comes to defense spending, it really is about the long game. Uh, that that you know not you need to you need to spend constantly and not in surges because when you do need to surge as we, uh, the U.S. government spending in Ukraine is absolutely the right thing to do, but we need to be extremely mindful of what happens next. The goal, hopefully, will be this major multi generational threat in terms of Russia will have been essentially degraded to the point of a limit. That should lead to the ability to have more budget discipline in defense. So it's we have that's when we're going to have to be really vigilant. Is after the hopefully positive effects of all the spending occur, then we have to get back to work and make sure that we're doing the right thing uh, fiscally. Rich, I'm afraid that's all the time we have this week. We've covered a lot of territory, and I uh, we're going to have to have you back. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. You're listening to Facing the Future on WKXL. Our guest has been Rich Ashew. Thanks a lot. I'll be back again next week for another edition of Facing the Future. 